Hello everyone, my name is Mina Ramchandani. I'm an infectious disease physician at the University of Washington in Seattle. This podcast is dedicated to an STD literature review for healthcare professionals who are interested in remaining up to date on the diagnosis, management, and prevention of STDs. For this episode, we again welcome Dr. Lisa Manhart. Dr. Manhart is a professor at the University of Washington who has over 20 years of experience in studies of clinical epidemiology of STIs and socio-behavioral risk for STIs. Currently, her primary research focuses on mycoplasma genitalium, including studies of treatment efficacy, natural history, and surveillance of this infection, as well as antimicrobial resistance. This is the second episode of two interviews with Dr. Manhart on mycoplasma genitalium, and I'm going to say MGen for short when talking about this organism. We're going to be talking about hologic tests and the lefamulin antibiotic, which is made by Nabriva in this episode. It's important for us to disclose that Dr. Manhart has research funding and research supplies from both Nabriva and Hologic, and I receive research funding from Nabriva. So let's take a step back and talk about aspects of MGen management that can be challenging for clinicians. So the first question I have is, when would a clinician test for MGen or have MGen on the differential diagnosis? Can you review some of the typical clinical symptoms that a clinician would be concerned about MGen infection? MGen is associated with virtually all of the same clinical syndromes as chlamydia and gonorrhea. It's associated with non-gonococcal urethritis, NGU. That's where we have the most data. It's also associated in most studies in women with cervicitis, pelvic inflammatory disease, and some of their sequelae, um, such as infertility, although the data in female reproductive tract syndromes is a little less consistent than the data that we have for associations with NGU. It's pretty clearly a cause of NGU. Thank you. And so the patient's presenting with non-gonococcal urethritis or NGU, and I'm going to say NGU from now on. And they're tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia, but both tests are negative, but the patient is reporting continued symptoms. So if one were concerned about MGen infection, what type of testing would one do and what type of specimens can be used? Well, definitely you would want to use a nucleic acid amplification test or a NAT. There are now at least three FDA-cleared NATs on the market today. Laboratory-developed tests often don't publish their test performance characteristics, so we don't really have information on how sensitive and specific they are. But there is some anecdotal evidence suggesting that the laboratory-developed tests are less sensitive than um, the FDA-cleared assays. So unless you can't access one of the FDA-cleared assays, that would be what I would recommend. There's one made by Hologic, there's one made by Roche, and there's a third made by Abbott. Um, And they all have pretty uh, similar sensitivity and specificity, although the Hologic assay is slightly more sensitive. So if a clinician was concerned about MGen infection in a patient, it'd be better to try to get a laboratory test done that was FDA approved for MGen, because if it's not, let's say if it's an in-house laboratory derived MGen test, not one of the FDA approved ones, then you could potentially have false negatives. Is that correct? That's exactly right. 
And that is the concern that some people have expressed with relying on non-FDA cleared tests. And how would you test for it? Would you do a urine sample? What type of sample would you use? You can use really um, either urine or swab samples. They're both good. Obviously, urine samples are easier to get, particularly in person's male sex at birth. Urine is a little bit less sensitive than a swab specimen, um, particularly in uh, cisgender women. But, you know, obviously it's better to get a urine specimen than no specimen at all. And that's also quite good. So let's go back to the patient. The clinician tests for MGen using NAT of the urine and the results are positive. So what's the first line recommended regimen if MGen is detected in the U.S.? You have a test that's positive for MGen. How would you treat this patient in the U.S.? So the recommended uh, treatment for M-genitalium is actually sequential therapy, starting first with doxycycline, that seven-day regimen that you would give empirically for NGU or cervicitis. And then once the patient completes that seven-day doxycycline regimen, you would treat with either azithromycin or moxifloxacin. Ideally, you would um, be able to determine whether or not uh, the infection was macrolide resistant, um, ruling out treatment with azithromycin and indicating that you would treat with a seven-day regimen of moxifloxacin. Um, We don't really have uh, in most places the capacity to use resistance-guided therapy. And so in most places, the recommendation is to just go straight to moxifloxacin after the doxycycline to avoid treatment failures with azithromycin. So I want to ask you a question about that because this has come up in our clinical setting. So you have a patient who has NGU and you treat them with doxycycline. And let's say it takes them a while to come back into clinic. So it's maybe like a week or two later, but they're still having symptoms. You test them for MGen, the MGen comes back positive. Now it's been two weeks since they've had their doxycycline course, at what point would you restart the doxycycline to do the sequential therapy, doxycycline and then moxifloxacin? Or could you just now use moxifloxacin since you already gave doxycycline two weeks before? That is a really hard question, Mina, because we actually don't have any data (laughs) to answer the question. Um, So I'll go back to maybe the reason why we first used doxycycline and then tell you what I think makes sense, um, recognizing that, that, that it really is in completely in absence of data. So we use doxycycline in part just because they're getting it anyway as the empiric therapy for whatever syndrome they come into the clinic with. But we also explicitly recommend it in sequential therapy for M. genitalium because Although it doesn't work very well to clear the organism, it does a great job at reducing the organism load, which then um, both paves the way for that second antibiotic to come in and work more effectively, as well as reducing the risk of selecting for resistance for whatever that second antibiotic is. So that said... Since the primary goal with the doxycycline really is to reduce the organism load, 
Several experts have recommended that if it's more than seven days after they've completed their doxycycline regimen, that you would restart the doxycycline and then follow it immediately um, with moxifloxacin. That's helpful. I know that comes up in the clinical setting quite a bit. And then can you tell us in terms of this treatment and testing, let's say if someone was outside of the U.S., uh, what if they were in the United Kingdom or in Australia? Are there differences in the guidelines for treatment for MGen? There aren't really differences in guidelines across settings, but other settings have more antibiotics available to them to treat MGen. So there are some differences in what's recommended for treatment failures, but generally most places, including the U.S., recommend using resistance-guided therapy if you can, if it's available to you, treating with azithromycin, high-dose azithromycin if you have a macrolide-sensitive infection, and moxifloxacin if you have a resistant infection. The difference really is in the treatment options for treatment failures. Now, my experience in the clinical setting has been that I have not been able to access resistance testing to help guide therapy. Is that more available in other countries? Absolutely. It was first developed in Australia and they've been using um, a resistance detection assay um, for many years. That assay, uh, along with several others, is also available in Europe um, and many other countries throughout the globe. And uh, to my knowledge, there are not any resistance detection assays in the pipeline currently seeking FDA approval. Well, that's helpful. So there's none that are currently commercially available in the U.S. and there's none potentially in the horizon immediately that you know of. Yes and no. In terms of FDA approval, I would definitely say nothing immediately on the horizon. The very first MGen assays that were commercially available were available through kind of this special platform called Analyte-Specific Reagents, where you could buy the reagents and then validate the assay in your own laboratory and then begin using uh, the assay. I do think that at least one company um, may be making resistance testing in that fashion available in the near future. But in terms of FDA approvals, to my knowledge, no one is really pursuing that route right now. Wouldn't it be fantastic to have like a point of care test for MGen that could also do like rapid resistance testing right then and there in 30 minutes? That would be fabulous. That would be fabulous <laughs> for everything. We need that for gonorrhea too. But yes, then you could, you know, you could preserve the antibiotics that we have and for instance, you could still use azithromycin if you had a macrolide-sensitive infection. Thank you. Uh, so let's go back to this patient. What if the patient reports no sexual encounters, is treated with moxifloxacin or first doxycycline and then moxifloxacin, but still reports continued symptoms? At what point would you retest for MGen to think about failure of the antibiotics to resolve the infection? Yeah, given the NAT tests, nucleic acid amplification tests that are FDA cleared are so sensitive, uh, you really want to have a fairly long window to make sure that you're not just picking up uh, residual nucleic acids. So generally, uh, three to four weeks after, you 
you might be able to, you know, squeeze by with uh, 14 days after they finish their treatment. But the recommendation really is 21 to 28 days after completing therapy. Because leftover DNA just might be there that you could be picking up and not necessarily active live organisms that are replicating, correct? Exactly. And um, there are a number of patients whose symptoms don't immediately resolve after the organism is cleared. So there are cases of people who report continued symptoms for a little while longer, even in the absence of an ongoing infection. Oh, that's helpful. And so let's say the test becomes positive. What's the next step for treatment? So you've given doxycycline, you've given moxifloxacin, you may not have access to resistance testing. What other options are there? And what are the efficacy of different antibiotic regimens that have been reported in the literature? That's tough. There are limited options in the United States. I think the first thing I would do again, recognizing I'm not a medical provider, this is from a research perspective, is if the patient hasn't had azithromycin, I would try that simply because there are so few options and not all MGen infections are macrolide resistant. And the guidelines do recommend that, but not with single dose azithromycin, with a four-day regimen of longer duration azithromycin with a total of 2.5 grams. What's the prevalence of azithromycin resistance in the U.S.? Overall average is about 60% of MGen infections are macrolide resistant. Um, There's some variation in that. There are some areas where it's lower and some areas where it's been, and some populations where it's been measured as high as 80 to 90%. So depending on your geographic location, you will probably have more or less success using azithromycin. Let's say the patient can't take azithromycin, or let's say they fail azithromycin. Are there antibiotics that are available or have shown efficacy for MGen infection? There's only... One other antibiotic that we have data on that's available in the United States, um, it's an older tetracycline, minocycline, and a 14-day regimen of minocycline has been effective in studies in Australia in about 70% of people who have previously experienced treatment failure. So that's actually a pretty good option. That's the best option that we have right now in the United States. There is another newer tetracycline called amatocycline. We have some in vitro data suggesting that it should have good efficacy, but to my knowledge, it hasn't been tested yet in human studies. There is another antibiotic that we've been studying called lefamilin. It also has great in vitro data, but there uh, thus far are no clinical data that have been published showing efficacy. In other countries, there are a couple of other antibiotics that people can access. Pristinomycin is an antibiotic that is manufactured in France, and it has about 75% efficacy in MGen treatment failures. Citafloxacin is a quinolone that is available in other countries that is a more potent quinolone than moxifloxacin, and it also has been successful in MGen treatment failures. But of course, unfortunately, we don't have access to either of those two antibiotics. 
question that comes up among patients, especially those who have been through multiple antibiotic courses to try to treat this infection, is that they've taken doxycycline a couple of times. Why would minocycline potentially work if it's in the same class of antibiotics? It's slightly more potent than doxycycline. We actually don't know why doxycycline isn't uh, very effective. In vitro studies uh, show great susceptibility of MGen to doxycycline. There really is no evidence of the classic tetracycline resistance gene in doxycycline. So we don't think that doxycycline poor efficacy is really due to resistance. I suspect it could be due to poor penetration Mm. um, to the genital tract tissue and minocycline may penetrate better. There's a lot that we don't know about why doxycycline doesn't work and why minocycline might work better. But we do have clinical data showing that in people whom doxycycline doesn't work, minocycline does. So let's say the patient takes minocycline after they've been through all these different treatment regimens and after they take their course of minocycline, which is 100 milligrams twice a day for 14 days, they then report that their symptoms have resolved. So is a test of cure recommended by the CDC STI treatment guidelines? The CDC treatment guidelines actually recommend against a test of cure in persons whose symptoms resolve. The reason for that is complicated And it really is based on two things. One, that we don't have great data on the natural history of asymptomatic M. genitalium infections. And so we can't definitively say that an individual with an asymptomatic infection is actually going to experience harm. And I want to clarify that not great data is not the same as there isn't any harm. It's Mm -hmm. just that we actually don't know uh, definitively that an asymptomatic infection causes harm. But we do know that more antibiotic pressure results in more antibiotic resistance. And so the decision that was made in the CDC treatment guidelines was really to balance the harms of tests of cure in asymptomatic individuals with the harms of increasing antibiotic pressure. And the conclusion was made that the harm of increased antibiotic pressure outweighs an uncertain benefit of treating um, an asymptomatic infection. Whether that is the right decision remains to be seen. So we really need better studies about the sequelae after as a result of an asymptomatic infection. And going along those lines, what is the management of sex partners? Let's say the sex partners are asymptomatic. The other thing we worry about with asymptomatic STIs is the contribution that they make to ongoing transmission within the population. So for sex partners, the recommendation is to first test them assuming that you can, and treat them with the same antibiotic that their sex partner received. Mm. Uh, If you can't get the sex partner tested, it is still recommended to treat them with the same antibiotic regimen. It just would be better to test and confirm that they are actually infected if possible. 
With regards to antibiotic pressures and the concern for resistance, as well as the concerns for unnecessary antibiotic use, there have been some patients with MGen infection that I've seen or heard about who have received extended courses of antibiotics, for example, four to six weeks of moxifloxacin. Is there any data to support these extended courses? And what is the prevalence of resistance to the fluoroquinolones? There is absolutely no data to support multiple courses of fluoroquinolones or longer duration of quinolones. In fact, uh, when moxifloxacin first began to be used uh, to treat MGen, there were a variety of different durations of therapy used from 7 to 10 to 14 days of moxifloxacin. And really, when you looked at that duration in a similar time period before resistance really developed, there wasn't much difference in cure rates between 7, 10, and 14 days for uncomplicated infections. Um, so as a result, the, the CDC guidelines really only recommend seven days for urethritis and cervicitis. If you need to treat a PID uh, case, uh, 14 days are recommended. But aside from that, there's really no evidence to suggest that more or longer duration of fluoroquinolones is going to work. Fluoroquinolone resistance in MGen is a lot more complicated than macrolide resistance in MGen. Macrolide resistance is very straightforward. It's caused by single point mutations that are very clearly correlated with treatment failure. The resistance associated mutations that have been identified in uh, for fluoroquinolones are many. There are many more than a couple, and not all of these mutations correlate really well with treatment failure. The only way we can um, kind of detect resistance is molecularly. We can't use uh, culture really in many settings because it's so challenging to culture the organism. And uh, quinolone resistance may be dependent on mutations in more than one gene. There's one primary gene, but there's also a secondary gene, and it looks like there might be some synergy between mutations in those two genes. So all of that is to say that we really have a lot more to learn about uh, the mechanisms for fluoroquinolone resistance and fluoroquinolone treatment failure. Sounds like we really need more antibiotics to be able to treat this infection. Can you tell us a little bit more about lefamulin? What type of antibiotic is this? And can you tell us a little bit more about your study? Lefamilin is a completely different class of antibiotic. It's a pleuromutilin, and it's an FDA-approved antibiotic. Um, it was studied initially for community-acquired bacterial pneumonia and is quite effective in head-to-head -head trials with moxifloxacin. So it performs equally well as um, moxifloxacin for community-acquired bacterial pneumonia. It's been tested in vitro against M. genitalium, chlamydia, and gonorrhea, and the MICs for M. gen are great, suggesting that the antibiotic should work. We initiated a randomized trial to um, test how effective lefamilin would be in M. gen treatment failures or in people who in whom moxifloxacin is contraindicated. And the trial design is to compare P. 
treatment with lefamine alone to a sequential treatment of doxycycline followed by lefamine. This trial is currently paused, but we hope to be able to restart um, in the near future. Lisa, thank you so much for talking with us about M. genitalium. This has been a great overview of testing and treatment for this infection. It's been a wonderful pleasure to have you on this episode. This podcast is brought to you by the National STD Curriculum, the University of Washington STD Prevention Training Center, and is funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Transcripts and references for this podcast series can be found on our website, the National STD Curriculum at www.std.uw.edu.